Okay, so um, this is our uh, third class uh, out of a six-part series on growing wisdom through meditation. And um, these are going to build into a whole for people who manage to get to all of them, but if you don't, it's okay. Um, they uh, work individually also. Um, I wanted to start with a review of the uh, homework, quote unquote, from last time, just to check in and catch up on how that went for anyone. So if you might remember the recommendations from last time were to, in daily life, notice how actions and speech um, feel in the body and whether there's any information coming in about um, what is skillful or unskillful in terms of that, and also to practice uh, shamatha meditation, calming meditation uh, on the cushion. So I'm curious mm -hmm. if um, how that worked out for anyone or if you have any comments or questions. I'll go yeah. ahead and speak. So what I noticed was the physical sensation of the mind contracting. Uh-huh particularly in relation to news and my interpretations of news. News, yes. This is a time for that. So to, to deal with that, I have uh, set certain times of the day when I can tune into the news, and I've limited the number of evening cable news shows <laughs> that I'm permitted to watch. I just had to set some rules down. But... Uh, so meditation practice has been real helpful with this too, because I've, I've done some, some focusing on just trying to expand space or spatial awareness mm. when sitting um, and when trying to still the mind. And I find that by, try, by working with some directional sort of spatial mm -hmm. aspects of concentration that I'm able to temper or diminish some of the contraction to kind of, you know, get, try to get at least to the edge of the skull, if not right. a little bit further out. So. That's great. That's beautifully described. Um, and there's so many, so much of what we're working with is in the realm of perception. And we're, you know, once you sort of wake up to this in terms, meditation really helps us see this because interior experience is so different from exterior, at least initially. Um, and so we get to see so clearly how the mind and body respond and how what's being given to us is also meant to influence our perceptions. <laughs> it's like, whoa, the, the world is trying to shape me in a certain way. And practice um, you know, really uh, helps us deal with that better by giving us um, that awareness and some strength around that. I'm talking a little bit around what you said, but it's um, pointing to something much bigger and I think it's great what you're doing. Definitely limiting, on a practical scale, limiting news or managing it somehow is really, really wise. You know, we want to do, we want to be informed in some way, but uh, only in a way that is helpful for us. Yeah. Hmm. Is there any doubt right now that practice is really important for anyone here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Any other comments? Um, I think I, I just kind of feel shocked at what, I mean, what you both just said, because 
you know, my experience has been out of, I've been really out of my body and out of my mind. And I, I'm just kind of coming back into my body. And uh, I've had two really, I mean, kind of miraculous falls this last month. I mean, that no major damage was done, but I mean, I literally fell on my knee and haven't been able to walk. And um, I mean, it got really swollen. I couldn't even see it. And, and, um, and I'm just starting to come back into my body, but it, it, it's, and it's, it's absolutely profound to realize how much out of my body I was. So I don't think it was so much, yeah, from meditation. It was, I mean, I, it was like the falls sort of got me in touch with how out of touch I was. Even though, I mean, I've been meditating, but my meditation has been off too. So, but it, it's almost like, now I'm starting to come back into my body and and without I kind of what you just said to Kim, you know, without meditation, I, I, it would, I, it would be really hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad your body is healing again, but um, yeah. Um, this body is so impermanent. You know, we, we, there are other teachings to be seen in that also. And, um, you know, being out of body, I don't know if you meant that in a, a positive way or not. It's probably good to be grounded in the body. Um, I tend to emphasize that in my teaching. You look like you want to say something. Oh, no, I did not mean it in a, in a positive way yeah. at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we can get disconnected in certain ways. Um, and, but of course, liberation is in the mind. There is going to be a time when the body doesn't serve us at all. <laughs> and, um, and yet the mind can, um, keep developing and keep getting more refined and more, um, kind and loving, uh, all the way up until the moment of death, really, whereas the body we know is going down toward the moment of death. So there are differences, but I, I, um, I recognize your wisdom in, feeling that it would have been good to be more in the in the body because the mind and body go together you can't really only be in the mind except occasionally certain meditations yeah welcome back arlene it looks like you've um got a more stable connection now yeah yeah i i kind of missed the last six or seven minutes so okay yeah we saw you coming in and out yeah. but that does that does mean that you have to tell us your favorite vegetable <laughs> <laughs> oh gee, I think uh, I think I like eggplant. Oh good. Lot. Okay, great. Yeah, uh, it's only your current favorite one, by the way. So we're not going to write that down and hold you to yeah, it. Yeah, I have a lot. I like a lot of them. Yeah. Okay. Good. Well, um, we're also at the segment of commenting on anything from the last um, material that we went over. The last one was about the path, and so we talked about using the body as um, an indicator of wholesome, unwholesome, whether or not, yeah, how to navigate through the world, and also to practice calming meditation. So um, it's just popcorn if anybody has any additional comments on that. Uh, 
Pop popcorn means anybody can talk who wants to. Find that term. I shouldn't assume. <laughs> like, it, it, it means I don't call on you. It, does, it means not everybody has to comment. It's just if somebody um, wants to. I yeah. see. Okay, well, I can comment. Uh, just to say, in all truthfulness, I had lots of things I was going to say yesterday. And then some uh, an emotional upset occurred in the last few hours, and I feel only pain. And so I'm just like gonna shut up and hope okay. it passes. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm I'm glad that you showed up because we always just show up how we are. It doesn't. Yeah. You don't have to be in any particular mood to arrive. And I hope that um, maybe something will shift over this time. Surely something will change. Okay. Risa. Um, walking meditation has been really useful for me. Um, if I get confused or kind of off track in any way, I just start doing walking meditation. Um, and, uh, you know, of course I'm in my body. I love each footfall. I love the way I can't, I'm alive, I can't believe I'm alive, how am I walking, you know, stuff like that happens and I immediately get grounded by walking. Yeah. I don't know, it's just, it's very calming to me. Well, of course, just sitting down and meditating, doing shamatha is also calming totally. Um, I've had instances where I've been absolutely out of my mind, maybe 10 years ago. <laughs> And I thought, can I meditate now? Let me try. Uh, and I just sat down and on my cushion, boom. It, it's very calming just to have established the practice itself. And then, so the position, I guess, maybe just the position of the body. Um, yeah. So yeah. The body can um, uh, provide a, a structure for the, for the mind. Yeah, that's why... Uh, we don't need to be in any particular posture to meditate, but whatever meditation posture we've established does provide some support. We shouldn't rely on it totally because like Marilyn discovered, you can not be able to do that same posture, um, you know, if you get injured or something. But nonetheless, there is uh, something about the physical state that helps the, can support the mind for sure. Okay, well, good. Oh, Doug, you had a comment. Yeah, I just um, I thought I would just react fairly uh, quickly. Um, you asked about action and speech. Yes. And wholesome and unwholesome. Uh, I would say if I uh, am in a place of wholesomeness, uh, I get a feeling of openness. And right, in the, in the body, you mean? Unwholesome behavior. Body and mind. Yeah, body and Open. mind. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And in unwholesomeness, I feel contraction. Yep. Kind of a... And, yeah. So it's really kind of opposites, right? Yeah. yeah. That's similar to, to what Stephen said, and I think um, it's a really... Right. Uh, it's so important to be able to feel this. Like most people go through their lives not knowing that there's this contraction and this openness, even though it's right there when we can can see and have tuned ourselves to pay attention to it. 
Um, and with that, and it provides really useful information, doesn't it? So it's, um, it's amazing, you know, this immediacy. Thank you for pointing that out. Arlene, did you have a comment? Well, yeah, I wanted to say it, just listening to what Doug just said about wholesome speech, you know, I've re I really work on that. And in the last particularly three, four weeks with what's going on in our country and in our politics and everything, um, I've, 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 I've made comments about our president and how I feel about things that probably aren't real, that aren't wholesome. And um, it, it, you know, it's, it's unusual for me. I, mm. I, I tend to really try to watch my speech, but I'm just so, I'm so, you know, I'm upset. And um, I just wanted to put that out, you know, that I do think that the path is, is through wholesomeness, but, but I'm having a little struggle right now. Yeah, you're, you're pointing to something uh, quite important in that, um, you know, we, it's wise speech is not formulaic. Uh, you know, we can get in our mind, oh, I have to always um, be like super kind and um, kindness is good, of course. And, and we can, you know, we can criticize in unwholesome ways. Um, but there are also, the, the teachings get a little more subtle than that um, also in terms of there are times when silence is unwholesome or when, um, you know, speech that is beneficial includes speech that is not welcome to other people um, as long as it's done timely, in a timely way and in a way that we're coming from a place of kindness, of care about them. So there are a lot of conditions around saying things that are not so welcome or, you know, pointed in a certain way. But we are allowed to um, when these other conditions are met. And there can be times when just sitting there and saying nothing um, contributes in a certain way to unskillfulness and un an unskillful situation. So I just want to say that I guess um, maybe we don't need to go into a lot of detail on it right now, but it's, uh, we don't want to get caught in ideas that, you know, wholesome speech is always just agreeing with things or whatever. Not that I think you were doing that necessarily, Arlene, but I'm expanding on what you said because, and it's not easy. It's a lifelong path and there's no formula where we can say, okay, now I've got it. I can just always do it this way. It's, you know. The other thing I'm struggling with is with Meta, I've, I've worked to, I, I've had sort of my own little practice of when it comes to um, people, you know, non-neutral beings, negative beings to, to offer negative uh, meta to my, to our president, because I just think it's a good thing. And um, I'm having, I'm, not, I'm having a lot, a lot of trouble doing that right now. So. Yeah. Well, if it's, if it's too much of a stretch, then um, <laughs> you don't have to, you know, as always meta we do at the level that feels like we can do it. Yeah. We push ourselves a little bit, but um, it also might mean getting creative about, um, in fact, I'm going to talk about meta today. So why don't we, uh, or at least different, not meta to people, but uh, the stance of meta. And you might find something in there, actually, that is helpful, because what I'll say does apply to the more standard practice of offering meta to people. Okay. 
Well, good. So, um, so we've talked about this path, sila, samadhi, and panya, the main components of it, ethical conduct, mental development, and wisdom. And uh, now we have to actually walk it. You know, the, 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 the intellect loves to just know all this stuff, but then there's kind of the, the process of walking it also. And so I wanted to talk today, our, our subject is going to be to focus on, um, first of all, some of the nourishments of the path, the things that help give it some juice, um, make it more than just intellectual. You know, what are the kind of deeper connections that we start having, other factors we start bringing in. And then um, if there's time, I'll say a little bit about one of the Dharma qualities that starts to emerge uh, from our practice. We, today, maybe we'll get to clear comprehension. Um, so that's, yeah, something that starts to come. Um, so I want to, even if you've heard of these qualities before that I'll talk about, I, I might be talking about them in a little bit different way. So um, you might see something new in them. So the first quality that is uh, something that we've been doing already is mindfulness. It's so fundamental to the path. I, I felt like I would be remiss if I didn't just name it as absolutely important in uh, being able to uh, bring our understanding into uh, something that's going to be actually functional in the path. Uh, it might be interesting to know that mindfulness, which is sati, uh, is not precisely defined anywhere in the Buddhist text. You know, there's no uh, sutta that says this exactly is what mindfulness is. There is, there are some that have definitions of how it how it looks and things that it's related to, but it's not quite precisely defined like we might want it to be in a very exact sense. Um, so it might intrigue us to look a little bit more carefully at how it is talked about. Um, so mindfulness is different from mindfulness training. Mindfulness itself is different from mindfulness training. So we do mindfulness training uh, in order to cultivate this mysterious, not so well-defined thing that's called mindfulness. And it's a little bit the same way that um, running as a bodily capacity, you know, like, like running, I'm running, um, is different from training to run. Um, you know, if I'm training to run, I might run up and down the stairs, or I might um, do wind sprints, or I might do leg exercises, all of which are part of training to, to my capacity to run, um, which is a, a slightly different thing. And there's, you know, there's sort of other things that come in around it. So in the same way, um, mindfulness training, we're given a bunch of areas to direct our attention toward and ways to become aware of things. That's what the Satipatthana Sutta, which somebody named as their favorite practice, um, is about. It's about all these exercises around mindfulness. And the result of doing Satipatthana training is that we have a stronger capacity for mindfulness. Um, but it's not because all those exact things are sort of the most critical uh, parts of experience, even necessarily. Uh, sort of in the same way that stairs, like stadium stairs, or there's nothing special about stadium stairs, but you run up and down them in order to um, develop the capacity to run. So there's nothing like sort of magical about the breath, although there are some things that are kind of magical about the breath. Um, 
but it does help train mindfulness really well. So it's kind of a, a fine distinction, but it's useful to know that. So it's, um, you know, what is, what are we doing in mindfulness training? Um, essentially what we do is we take our experience. I mean, we've been experiencing things since probably before we were born, but certainly from the time that we were born, um, stuff has been coming in to our sense doors and we do things with it. Um, but if you've never really paid much attention to that, you're just uh, living in some, you know, the, the way that you've been trained, uh, experience can seem a little bit like a wash. Uh, you know, it's just stuff coming in and, and <clears throat> we don't think about it too much. So mindfulness training asks us to start getting a little bit more precise about what it is that we're experiencing. You know, when I experience the breath, what does that mean? Breath is just a word, breath, and we, we all know what it is. But uh, in mindfulness training, you're asked to direct your attention toward that and notice things about it. Notice if it's long or short. Notice um, the, the different sensations that go with it, this direct experience, right? Instead of just being breath, it's a series of sensations of the nose and through the system and, you know, the pressure on the in-breath and the release on the out-breath. These are a little bit more, you know, specific than just saying in-breath and out-breath. So that trains what? It trains our capacity to see and make distinctions, which is an important part of mindfulness. So it's, um, mindfulness has this capacity to differentiate and clarify, which is similar to what we do with our analytical mind, right? Except that it's a little bit different function, isn't it? Because mindfulness is based on sensory experience. And we know that analytical thought can be everywhere except sensory experience and it can exist outside of that just feeding on itself that's that discursive thought that we talked about so essentially we're cultivating um, functions that are similar to what the analytical mind does but are more grounded in experience so in that way um, i guess i'm trying to say that the function of making distinctions and being clear about things um, is actually a fundamental path quality, but it's different from um, discursive thought, from analytical thinking, and yet it's using that same capability of mind, just applied to sensory experience, and that's part of what we develop in mindfulness. So we maybe see that the, um, the function of clarifying things and being precise is more fundamental than analytical thinking, and it can be used in, in service of the path. So that's kind of the first nourishment of the path is, is mindfulness itself. And then the, um, the second one is really more about how we're aware. So um, the quality of our awareness or the, <clears throat> the stance or the attitude of our awareness Excuse me. And so that is something that um, I call an aspect of metta, of goodwill. And that might sound a little surprising because, you know, metta is really defined as a relationship to beings. You know, it's how I relate to others, to whether it's my, well, myself, it could be, or, you know, if we do the categories, it would be you know, a benefactor and a friend and so forth. And that is definitely the kind of main idea of metta, 
but the Metta Sutta, which somebody else also named as their favorite teaching right now. I love that you guys have such fundamental, important teachings on your minds. Um, metta really is defined as a, a mind state in, in that sutta. It's, it has a lot to do with um, uh, cultivating your own ethical qualities. You know, the whole beginning part of that sutta is about uh, establishing yourself in goodness and then you turn toward beings and it's very inclusive you wish well to all of them and then the last part of the sutta starts saying that you're something that you abide in and when you're abiding in something you don't necessarily think about individual beings and it has to do with people who have let go of sensual pleasures and who have right view or not caught up in wrong views. So it starts to sound like something that's a lot more fundamental than just, you know, Kim relating to some other being. And it is. Metta is actually a very deep heart quality that infuses our whole mind and even our body. So this is my justification for saying that I can use Metta as a uh, a name for the orientation that we're aware with because often um, mindfulness will be qualified like if you learn on retreat people will say the teacher might say have, have kind attention for your experience and that's emphasizing that we want to have some uh, goodness niceness about how we how we're aware instead of a little bit of harshness as we might so I'm going to name three dimensions of how we could be aware um, that bring in different aspects. So first of all, um, it is possible for those of us with an aversive temperament who tend to, to criticize or see things that are uh, difficult about the world is that we can bring in kind of a judgmental attitude into our mindfulness. So things are arising in our experience. We're, we're sitting there trying to do our Satipatthana practice on the breath. But what we're actually thinking is every time we have a thought, we say, oh, that shouldn't have arisen, or we get distracted, or we start thinking about, uh, you know, supper tomorrow or something, and we say, well, that wasn't right. And so, you know, it's kind of mindful. We noticed that our mind had gone off, but we have this little bit of attitude of knowing what we think should arise and shouldn't arise or how it should be. So there's a judgment in there, and we might not be seeing that in the attitude that we're bringing to the to the mindfulness so um i want to in this case say that if we have an, an experience of metta of inclusiveness of you know feeling that everything that is arising well it's already arisen there it is so it you know sort of accepting it we will have um, a sense of warm acceptance to our experience whatever is coming. Uh, I heard once a teacher say, um, whatever comes, you can say to it, not a wrong arising. It's a little bit tangled English, but you know, nothing that comes is a wrong arising because it arose. There it is. It can't be exactly wrong. It might not be something you want to follow or cultivate or, or pay more attention to, but at least it, it, you know, the fact that it came about came about because of conditions so this is metta as warm acceptance of whatever comes in experience. It's a way that an attitude that we can bring, a stance we can bring to our mindfulness. Those um, who are self-critical or not self-confident or tend to be uh, filled with a lot of doubt will have a subtle way of not taking their experience very seriously. 
So this is, um, you know, kind of um, some level not caring about our own well-being. You know, in that uh, when something comes, we might kind of be dismissive of it. Oh, you know, my mind's not in a very good state right now. Or, uh, see, I, this proves that I can't really do this very well. Or, you know, I'm sitting here, but I don't know what the point of it is. I don't know if anything's really happening. You know, thoughts like this are kind of um, in the realm of doubt or self-criticism. And uh, it's not actually a helpful attitude to the to the mindfulness. Uh, what we're doing actually is, um, I'll go so far as to say that sitting in meditation is a sacred act in some way. And so um, we have metta as respect in this case, a sense of respecting what we're doing. You don't have to think of it as sacred if that's not um, in your usual domain, but at least consider it as important or useful or fruitful or not at all a waste of time, even if the mind is full of hindrances, the fact that you're sitting there with it is still valuable. And so um, it may be helpful to bring in consciously a sense of valuing what you're doing in meditation. So metta as respect. And then um, maybe the third dimension I'll, I'll bring in. You, you don't, you're not going to need all of these every time, but it's just if your mindfulness has a little bit of one of these slightly off flavors, you can correct it with these other attitudes. So um, it can also be possible that we bring in an attitude of conceit or self-importance or attachment to a goal. Those are all similar. So we sit down and we say, this is it. I'm going to get to the first jhana in this sit um, just because I want to, you know. Um, and so then, you know, we, we bring in this sense of pushing a little bit. And that can be, um, of course, um, some, that's something that's encouraged in our culture. So we may just, you know, our mind might be in that state because that's how it is at work or how it is in our family even. You know, there's a sense of achievement or purpose or um, doing or selfing in some way. And so we can just accidentally bring in that attitude to our mindfulness. And so we're checking all the time, ooh, that was good. I just saw three breaths in a row. You know, it's like, um, and not sort of noticing that we're putting in that that extra sense. And so in this case, um, there's a, a, a need to back off a little bit and again, be more open and welcoming of whatever comes, not worrying too much about what gets achieved in that sit. And so this would be metta as ease. And it can be such a relief actually to realize when you realize you've had a little bit of goalness, goal-drivenness in a sit um, to let that go and open into whatever's happening is good, it's okay, it feels like such a relief. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, that's right. I can just sit with this. And so um, there's a much greater sense of ease. So we have um, these corrective, metta is sort of a corrective to mindfulness that's got a little bit of something extra in it. So um, metta as warm acceptance, as respect, and as ease. Um, as uh, things that we can consciously bring in if we feel like our mindfulness has a maybe a little tightness. Maybe that's how we would notice it, given that people talked about contraction or expansion. All of these flavors are slightly unwholesome. And so we might have a slight feeling of contraction in the mind if we're being mindful in, in those ways. Um, 
And if it's a stretch for you to call those dimensions of metta, I mean, they're dimensions of goodwill, of inclusivity, of making our experience whole in a sense, um, which is a lot of how I understand metta. If that doesn't work for you and you really want to relate it only to people, that's okay. Uh, you can just include ease, respect, and warm acceptance as qualities in and of themselves. All of these are nourishments for um, supporting the unfolding of the path. Are there any uh, questions at this point? I don't. I don't have a question, but just kind of. Uh... I just feel kind of gratitude. That's really helpful to sort of, um, I don't know, open up meta in yeah. a way. Really, really helpful. I, I don't know how, but thank you. Okay, that's good to hear. Um, I think meta is meant to be a, an attitude, really. Um, sort of a posture of the mind, if you will. So, um, what I thought we would do next then is um, have a, a meditation to allow ourselves to kind of tune into some of those qualities that, um, that I talked about. So if you could find a sitting posture or go to your sitting place, if you're going to do it that way and allow yourself to settle in. Maybe taking a couple of long, slow, deep breaths. And on that breath, allowing the body to relax a bit. bringing awareness into the body. So feeling the seat against the cushion or the chair. Feeling the legs or the feet against the floor. Maybe sensing the stability of where you're sitting, the groundedness, the fact that it's your seat is supporting you right now. And so allowing a little bit of release or relaxation into the seat and just letting it support you. And also feeling into the body as a whole in sitting posture.
maybe starting to differentiate some of the body sensations. So there's the straightness of the spine, energized, but, but not tight. And then maybe some softness around that, like the way a sea plant is anchored on the sea floor and then rises up while the fronds of the plant just float. And softening the expression on the face, the muscles around the eyes and the forehead, the jaw. Softening the eyes and the eye sockets. Releasing down through the shoulders, letting the shoulders soften. Releasing the arms. And down through the chest area. Softening the rib cage, heart, down through the belly. hip joints, releasing a little farther into the seat, down into the legs, all the way to the feet.
And then as the body becomes a little calmer, we may find that the sensations of the breath can be felt. Let's see if you can notice, just connect into the breathing sensations, the direct experience of that. And maybe finding the place where the breathing is the clearest right now. It might be at the, the nostrils or farther back in the nasal passages, maybe in the chest or even the belly, just somewhere where it feels clear. And then sit and, and observe at that clear spot in kind of a curious, open way, like watching waves at the beach, each one a little different, just watching the breath at that clear spot. If there are various hindrances in the mind, we may use the direct experience of the body to assist in including those, making sure they're not operating in the background. resting with the breath in the body, mindful of the simple sensations of breathing.
And then taking a moment to notice how we're being mindful at, at this moment, noticing the flavor of the mindfulness, the stance or the attitude. We may offer some aspects of metta to tune the mindfulness to be very inclusive and open, able to tap into all of experience because it's not subtly choosing one experience over another. So in particular, we can take on this task of being mindful, doing meditation uh, for real. So respecting and taking seriously that we're meditating right now, which is for some good aim. Maybe we're looking for happiness or peace, a way to be in the world without harm. This is really valuable. You're just respecting that that's, that you're doing something Really good. We can also encourage the mind to Accept whatever has already arisen in a warm way. If what has arisen is a distraction, that's fine. We just go back to the breath. So we favor the breath, but we're not concerned that not everything in our experience is the breath warm acceptance of whatever has already arisen. Whatever is coming, even as we favor the breath. And also bringing in a sense that there's really nothing that needs to happen during this time. There's really nothing to do, nowhere to go. No one to be. can feel the relief of just doing this one simple thing. 
simple ease of mindfulness of breathing. And from time to time, we may check back into the body. Just look through and see if there are any tense spots that have crept in. And just bringing our attention to those. respect and warm acceptance and ease.
All right, so coming back. Um, we'll take a, a few minutes for a, just a bio break if needed. So um, my clock says 2.29. Why don't we come back at about 2.35 or 6. So it's like a six minute break, something like that. I'll see you in a, in a few minutes. Okay, so now I want to talk about another uh, nourishment that um, is really important, but might take a little time to kind of settle into our system. And that is the quality that's called sata, or translated usually as either faith or trust or confidence. One teacher even translates it as conviction. So um, this quality, and this, this can be a difficult quality for people who are more oriented toward thinking. Um, I certainly understand that. I, uh, it was not my favorite quality when I began the path, um, but partly that was a reaction to the, to the language and, you know, to, uh, and also people have maybe had experiences in different spiritual traditions such that the word faith is a little challenging for them. But um, that's why I started with the Pali word sata, which is really something more all-encompassing or something a little different. It's not, it's not captured well by any English word. So I thought I would talk instead about the, um, the dimensions of sata that are described in the teachings. And you might be interested to know that one of them is cognitive. Uh, so it does actually have uh, that component. So one is cognitive, and then um, uh, the second one is uh, devotional, and the third is uh, motivational or intentional. So I'll, I'll talk about each of those. Um, the cognitive aspect of sata, if there, or the, maybe I'll just tweak your brains and say the cognitive aspect of faith <laughs> is that we... Um, a little bit like what we talked about in the first session of how we know, how we trust something or how we know something or rely on something. So the cognitive component can be things like taking seriously people that we respect. So, you know, deciding for ourselves, oh, this person seems to know what they talk, they're talking about. Therefore, I have some kind of trust or confidence in them. You know, if I, um, we talked earlier about the news. If I hear news that is from a source that I consider reliable, just you know, over time I've learned that, that they're probably reporting fairly, I'm more likely to believe that or you know, make some decision based on that than from a source that I'm not so sure about. So there's some component of trust or conviction that has to do with an, an actual evaluation of whether something is worth listening to. Um, it can also include reason support of something through logic. You know, I've thought this through and this makes sense to me. What you're saying makes sense to me. So I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna rely on that or trust that for now. Even if I don't, you know, can't completely experience it myself, I've thought it through and so I think that's okay. Um, believing scientific evidence. There are a lot of neuroscience studies that say meditation is helpful. 
are those, um, you know, maybe some of you got into meditation because of seeing some of those or hearing about the value of mindfulness-based stress reduction because that's been studied scientifically, something like that. It's not the way in for everyone, but that's a, a cognitive way of deciding that you trust something. And in general, this refers to, you know, being willing to believe things that we don't know experientially yet, but, you know, based on some prior experience or some sense that they, that they make sense. Um, those of you who have, were here at the, in the first session um, or have seen this in another setting, there's a sutta where the Buddha describes all of this as being somewhat unreliable ways of knowing things but that they're good enough. They're like provisional ways of knowing things. And sata is in a way provisional. We sort of put ourselves into something, even though we're not 100% you know, experientially based in that. Um, but you have to do that. <laughs> you can't do anything if you, in the world if you don't have some aspect of that. So um, for many people, uh, there's some degree of placing trust in what the suttas say, at least long enough to try out whether or not it's real, even if we haven't experienced all of that. Maybe based on just a little bit, you know, you've, you've read the Satipatthana Sutta, you've done a little breath meditation, it's, and it does indeed calm the mind. It seems to work and it uh, has a good effect. So then you decide, well, maybe this other sutta that says something different, uh, some other practice is recommended, okay, I'll try that. You know, um, I don't even know if this ever really comes to a close, as we keep seeing more and more in the suttas that um, hadn't seen before, and this like new dimensions of it keep unfolding. So, but each thing that we learn kind of carries us along to try the next thing and see, see if that is maybe true also. So that's one dimension, um, and it's it's recognized that that's part of what goes on in practice is this sort of cognitive checking of things. Um, and then there's also an aspect that's really more devotional. Um, I might say emotional in our culture, but it wasn't framed that way. It's framed more uh, devotional in terms of things like reverence or um, a heartfelt connection to something bigger than ourselves. This is something that we can have a sense of also. It's that, you know, we're, we're, we're giving our heart to something. You know, it's not only a cognitive, I've decided this is logical and therefore I will. Uh, maybe it is at some level, but when we start to get more into meditation, especially if you've done, say, retreat practice where the heart really opens and you can touch into things that are very different from something you've thought through carefully, um, we start to get a feeling also of, of love of some kind for this path. It, it may or may not be for a person, a teacher, but it could be for the practice, for the teachings, for the sangha that we've, um, the people that we've met who are also doing this, and we think, wow, I'm part of, you know, some something that's some human enterprise of cultivating the heart in some way, and there can be a, an upwelling of feeling about this. This is more about the feeling. Um, it brings also a sense of fidelity, of being true, just staying true to the practice. Um, that's what carries us through um, parts that get a little difficult or confusing or, you know, we realize we have to change something about our life because of the way we're, because of our practice. And if you don't have an emotional sense um, in there, it's going to be hard to do that. Um, and so 
there's that. There's also maybe also some intuition in this devotional side, the part of us that starts just kind of feeling like, I, just, I don't know, I just know this is the right thing for me. I just, I just feels like home to me or words like that. So these are all also aspects of sadha um, that are more or less prominent at different times on our path, but it's a recognized dimension, a different facet of it. Um, so I, I'll say that just for myself, I was one time on retreat at the forest refuge and I was doing a long retreat there. And the way it works there is that there are different teachers every month. They sort of change on a monthly basis. And I was there for, I think, a couple of months before, um, uh, maybe only one, before Joseph Goldstein uh, came on as the new teacher for the next month that was starting. And so I was sitting there and I was already in a pretty deep um, meditative state from having been there for a while. And I happen to really like the way Joseph teaches. I don't get to see him very much, um, but you know, the, the few times that I've sat with him, I've always really appreciated his clarity and just his obvious embodiment of the teachings. And I was surprised that uh, the morning when I was sitting there in the Forest Refuge Meditation Hall and he walked in for the first time and came to the front of the room and sat down, I had this upwelling of, of feeling in my, in my system. And it's not that I, I like think about Joseph all the time and have a picture of him on my altar, but I immediately recognized that it was Sadha. And it was that somehow seeing him and knowing that he's an embodiment of what, of something that I consider valuable in the Dharma, he embodies it in a way that, that speaks to me, um, that that had somehow just arisen from the, uh, from the condition of seeing him as a, seeing his body. So I was hard to explain, but um, it was very clear that that was what was happening in my mind. I thought it was interesting and that I immediately knew, ah, that's sadha. You know, that's a, a certain quality of mind. It's a very pleasant experience. It's lovely, very refined quality. So, um, yeah, so that's another dimension. And then the third dimension of sata is uh, motivational, actually, is that it's, it is meant to move us. We are moved by uh, faith, by this quality or confidence. It can make us do things. And so, um, for example, uh, sort of some of the uh, less active things you know, of creating things in the world are that you know, we might take refuge. You know, maybe you've done a refuge ceremony at your sangha or have just participated in that on retreats or something. That's an act of, of sadha, in a sense, if you buy into that and do it. Um, but, you know, if you've gone on retreat, going on retreat is an act of um, faith in some way. You're putting yourself into that practice, into that container. I don't know if anyone here is ordained, but if you've done that or if you go to Asia to, you know, seek out some of the, the source of where this came from. And there may be other motivations mixed into that, but somewhere in that is probably a sense of confidence or conviction or trust that there's something there, that there's something meaningful there. Um, if you get up at 5 a.m. to sit, you know, even though you have to go to then go to work all day, something is getting you to the cushion. And I would say that part of that is Sadha. So um, I'm not saying that these are like clearly distinct or you have to know at any moment which aspect you're in. They're just different dimensions, different faces that this quality can take. Um, 
And it's a, it's a mental factor that opens the mind. You know, sada is a very opening quality. And so it's an important nourishment for especially those of us who spend a lot of time, you know, thinking and making sure that everything makes sense. And, you know, there's, there has to be some kind of opening to something bigger and um, putting our, our heart into that in some way. It's very, very nourishing to bring in that dimension. I have an example that combines all three of them. Um, and, it's, and you'll see that it's not easy to separate them. Uh, which is that I've spent some time, um, I got motivated to learn Pali. And I'm definitely not, uh, you know, good at it, uh, really good at it, but, or able to, you know, sight read Pali, or I stumble through translations, and I wouldn't put myself out there as, you know, more authoritative than anyone else on these. But nonetheless, it took some effort. And it, um, and I found that it um, came about, you know, kind of out of a cognitive interest. I think it's, I keep wanting to get to the source. And eventually I started thinking, why am I reading all these suttas in English? Why don't I, you know, try to see it since we have available the original language that they were composed in. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Um, so there's that cognitive part. There's the uh, motivational part of actually putting in the effort to, to learn something about the language. And then I was surprised to find, though, that um, reading a sutta in Pali is different than reading it in English. It touches some other part of me. So there is kind of an emotional component where I feel like I've learned something about the teachings that I wouldn't have learned only in English. And, you know, there are other things maybe that having it, having the English where I understand the language is important. Um, but anyway, there turned out to be also an emotional dimension to this. And, so maybe it's just one uh, example of the way these three aspects of sada can come together to nourish some component of our path. Um, in this case, uh, connecting with the original source teachings for me. And it's, you know, and the, the particular acts that people do along their paths, you don't need to think, oh, now I need to do that. You know, if somebody goes to Asia, oh, now I need to do that. Uh, you know, it's like you're gonna find your own things, but all these things that I've named our possibilities, going on retreat, taking refuge, seeking the source of things in other ways, maybe deciding to study with a teacher. You know, there's all sorts of different things that we do. And in some way, they're motivated by our sense that this, have our confidence that this is going to be something good for us. So, um, okay. So that, that's what I had on, on faith or sadha. Are there any uh, comments or questions at this point? We're gonna do some small groups, but I just wanna make sure we're complete. Yeah, Risa. Uh, well, I think I've mentioned to you before that I have an issue with the word heart, but, um, but I certainly know that devotional connection. I know it and I feel it, and I, and I, but I, I guess I, I teach meditation to people and I'm reacting to this need. I need more precision. So I don't like to use the word heart. So this true fidelity and you said, and, and a home and intuition. And I thought, you know, a gut feeling those it's a very deep emotional intellectual. I mean, you're thinking, 
but heart, the only reason I don't like heart, even though it's, it, it's used constantly, is because I don't want it to be superficial, like heart, you know, heartfelt and, you know, kind of sounds gushy, but it's not gushy. It's really important. Um, right. So, so it, it's surprising that, that it's there. Uh, because like, like with, uh, like the, the moral rules, you know, that karma does and wholesome behavior begets wholesome outcomes. I've always thought, wow, why isn't it just chaos? You know, it's just so, it's so impressive that these things. It's built into hurt. the way the, the universe flows. Yeah. Yes. So I, I, I don't know. I wish there was another, I wish we, we Buddhists, I don't, maybe I'm just an oddball now about this heart thing. It's just a, a no, I, I think it's fine. I think we, um, we find language that, that's, that works for us and okay. it's very hard. Um, and it might be that it'll change, you know, sometimes yeah. we like something for a while and then we think, eh, this word doesn't work anymore. Or the reverse can happen. You know, we can say, oh, I don't like that word. And then later we think, oh, yeah, that's actually pretty good. <laughs> so, you know, it, uh, I think just be open to it shifting. Um, well, dukkha too. Like I'm, I'm psyched that you, you know, read Polly because I know very well that dukkha does not mean suffering. Right. It's a, it's a, it doesn't have a single word translation. Right. right. So, so it's so the language is a is a real obstacle sometimes, really, in a way. It's a tricky thing, translation, because yeah. um, we have to use language that yeah works for us, and we're right. not ancient Indians. And for right? others. And for others and so forth. And yet it's pointing toward things that ultimately don't have language, but yes. are, are actually meant to, to point to things in our experience. And sometimes there isn't just one English word that works for that. Yeah, yeah Stephen, Steve. Kim, uh, training overseas. Did I read somewhere that, that you trained overseas for a while? Only briefly, but yeah, I spent a little time in Sri Lanka. It's worthwhile to see how Asian Buddhism is done. Okay, very good. So, um, so now you'll get a chance to, to say a little bit more about this um, just amongst yourselves. I wanted to... Um, have a small group discussion on this quality of sadha because uh, it's not one that's easy to it's it's yeah sometimes hard to talk about and um so anything you say we're, we're using the word currently today so uh, when we when we gave our introductions it was all about what's currently happening so my my question is what aspect of sadha uh currently feels um, most alive to you, the cognitive aspect, the devotional aspect, the motivational aspect, uh, and how is that manifesting for you? You know, what is up in that general, so I just described kind of a large territory around where this field kind of operates, and I'm curious um, if you just reflect for a few minutes, maybe I'll just give you a 30 seconds or so to kind of reflect for yourself, you know, where does it feel like this 
This quality of sadha is alive, alive for you, has some juice for you. You can think for a moment and I'll create the breakout rooms. Okay, I think this is a topic where it's um, valuable to have a number of people. So uh, I'm gonna put you into a group of three and a group of four. And um, why don't you spend three minutes, two to three minutes each uh, kind of talking about it. And since this is a topic where people might need to kind of think through and um, let things emerge, why don't we not have um, crosstalk while somebody's talking? And if there's silence, um, you can sort of wait a little bit and maybe something else will come. So if, you, if you're the talker and you find that you say everything at sort of at the surface of your mind, but your three minutes isn't up yet, you can just sit quietly. And if something else comes um, that, you, that feels comfortable to put voice to, you could do that. Uh, it might be a way where with the gentle, let's infuse it with metta, the gentle, warm acceptance of the listening of the people around you, you might uh, learn something from what you say. Okay, so I will send a little reminder after each three-minute interval um, so you don't have to keep track of that. And just see how it goes. So what aspect of sada feels most alive for you right now? And how is that manifesting? So um, I hope that was interesting, and I'm curious um, if there are any uh, thoughts for the larger group, things you might want to share. Yeah, Risa. Um, right off the bat, one of the last things that uh, Arlene said, she said it sustains her, and that totally takes away the heart thing. I can use sustain. That is, that is so beautiful. Nice. Thank you. Lovely. Doug, are you leaning forward there? No, you're, you're muted. I was leaning forward something. <laughs> okay. I don't have anything. <laughs> okay. No problem. Any other um, comments on what you learned about Sada or what is most up for you? Maybe just a brief comment. Listening to the other men um, prompted me to understand, I think, more clearly the benefits that come from the synergies 
of these different aspects when they come together and mm. maybe a little bit more of an understanding about how that works with me. Yeah. Having these different, that's actually one of the benefits also of the way Dharma uh, teachings tend to separate things out. You know, there's the three of this and the four of that and the different things. And it's it's not really like a desire to create lists. It's partly also for, for what you said, Steve, is that when you see the different parts of it, then it, it becomes possible to create synergies between them or to, yeah, to kind of make it a fuller thing. Catherine. I have a question. We were, seem to feel a lot, there are tears discussed, and I was wondering if, um, I, and I thought I, I didn't write it down, but it seemed to me, oh yeah, I used the word feeling while you're talking about devotional, and I think you kind of slipped over the word emotional, and I'm a little unaware of w how this feeling, emotions, connects to what, to what we're talking about. To yeah, there's there's certainly an certainly an emotional aspect to faith. That's um, in the in Western understanding that we, we would say, well, of course, that's what it is. It's the it's that feeling. I only hesitated not because I don't think that's correct or or anything, but um, simply because in within the uh, way the Buddha framed his teachings. He doesn't really create a separate category called emotions. Um, that's an understanding in Western psychology. It's like just a different way of dividing up the pie of experiences that somehow the Buddha didn't create that exact category. But it's not like they didn't know about them <laughs> um, or didn't uh, use them or, or so forth. Um, so I was just trying to be a little bit true to the system within which these teachings come from. Uh, but definitely, uh, and as I don't think, I don't have a problem with using that word or that understanding because as Westerners, many of us have that understanding of the mind. That's how, um, how we frame it to ourselves. And so it's fine also. So yeah, there's certainly an emotional component to faith. Does that help? Yeah. It's always unsatisfying, I know, to say, what? The Buddha didn't talk about, a, a, you know, put a box around something and call it emotion? Like, uh, he didn't, actually. But, you know, there's, of course, there's talk, he talks about anger, about fear, about greed, you know, things that we would call clearly emotional. And I don't think ancient Indians were uh, less emotional than we are at all. Uh, you look at the Hindu religion, <laughs> Um, and also Buddhism. So it's just somehow in the language. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, I hope that was interesting. I've um, sometimes when there's, uh, yeah, I see nods, good. When there's a long time to talk about something and an encouragement to stay with it, I've discovered things, you know, that were willing to come up and, and be seen that I, that were kind of below that surface level where I could just, you know, talk about it briefly. Okay, so um, I want to go on then to talk a little bit about um, something called clear comprehension. So uh, remember that we're beginning to kind of differentiate the 
the function of mind that can make distinctions and you know usefully um, clarify things from you know the sort of the sort of surface level analytical thought that we busy ourselves with a lot. This function of mind is sort of more fundamental, and um, so the aspect of mindfulness training that deals with this tendency to be able to differentiate things is called uh, clear comprehension or, or sampajanya. In fact, sati sampajanya is a phrase of two things that you'll hear together a lot. They, they're sort of part and parcel of the same thing, but sometimes it's a useful distinction <laughs> to distinguish mindfulness itself from the clear comprehension. So um, developing clear comprehension is a maturing of the analytical function of the mind when we start to bring forth this particular quality. I think I mentioned last time at the end of the segment on the path that there were, um, as we start to understand our mind better and do more practice, there start to emerge what I call Dharma qualities that are related to wisdom. And one of them is clear comprehension. There's also, we're also gonna look at investigation of states. We're gonna look at wisdom itself as part of a kind of and right view, as kind of a cluster of things related to wisdom that emerge through practice. But one of them, uh, the first one we'll talk about today is clear comprehension. And um, in a kind of a almost circular definition, clear comprehension means acting in a clearly comprehending way. <laughs> um, and it's, um, it's also sometimes translated as full awareness. So I'll show you a slide about, there are four aspects generally to um, clear comprehension. I might not be on the right slide back to this one. There. Sampajanya. So this is actually a commentarial teaching. This set of four is not listed in the Pali Canon, but um, it's, you can pull it out of the Pali Canon. Uh, it's just not it's clearly differentiated, shall we say. So they're understood to be these four aspects. Um, one is clear comprehension of purpose or of benefit of an action that we're planning to do clear comprehension of suitability. I'll talk about these more in a moment. Clear comprehension of the domain, uh, which is defined to be the four establishments of mindfulness. Um, and clear comprehension of non-delusion or reality. So that means discernment of things in their, in how they actually are, free from delusion. So like these, like other lists like this, these are different facets of the same thing. And they, but they do have, it's useful to distinguish them. And so I want to talk a little bit about, um, about how to understand this list, how to think about this list. So the first two of uh, purpose and suitability are things that are engaged before we act or speak or even think actually could be. Um, and we want to kind of check on those, you know, to, uh, they're sort of listed in most important order. Like we have to check first if there's actually some benefit to what we're doing or some purpose um, of what we would want to do. And if there is, if it's clearly beneficial from a Dharma standpoint, we still, of course, would want to check if there's, um, if it's suitable, if it's the right time to be doing that particular thing. So um, you know, might not fit the context. So I gave the example earlier of that I had learned 
some poly and that that was very meaningful on my path. So that's something that's beneficial. It's clearly beneficial to do that. Um, but it might not be suitable to be deeply engaged in studying poly while I'm on retreat, for example. You know, that's not the right time to be sitting there puzzling through these um, logical things, maybe. Um, so, you know, that's an example of having a good purpose or benefit, but maybe not being suitable. Sometimes it's amazing how we have no idea what the purpose of what we're doing is. <laughs> you know, have you ever noticed this? On a very basic level, you know, you get to something and you're in the middle of it and you think, why am I doing this exactly? Or, you know, this doesn't seem quite right. I've done things where, um, you know, if I'm a little tired um, and my mind isn't that well engaged, I'll start to do something, not because it's really the most important beneficial thing for me to do at that moment, but because it's like easier than doing the thing that would be more beneficial at that moment. You know, I, I should be working on a, a paper that I need to write, but that's a little bit hard. And so my mind goes to, well, maybe I'll, you know, check my email. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not that it's unbeneficial to check my email, but I, I chose it at that moment without really thinking about whether I had time to do that. Maybe it, you know, I really need to be working on that paper. So, you know, um, you just want to check. I sometimes use clear comprehension uh, before I get on the computer. I've noticed that I have a tendency to get on and, you know, I can wander off into things that aren't what I was intending to do. I sit down intending to write an email to somebody, but when I get on, I discover another email that I need to respond to. And then uh, I look it up something in order to respond to that. And 15 minutes later, I still haven't written the email that was my intention when I sat down. So having noticed this, I sometimes um, bring clear comprehension before I get on the computer and I decide, okay, the first thing I'm going to do is write that email that I am intending to do um, so I don't get sucked into other things without a lot of reflection, without reflecting. Or you can set a time limit on certain things. Actually, it was great to see, we had an example of that earlier, of setting a time limit on the news. So you can also set a time limit on, I don't know what you guys do online, Facebook, if you do that. So, you know, um, it's nice to do Facebook sometimes if you check in with family or whatever, but I don't know, like an hour of it at once, I don't know. So, you know, we can decide, okay, it's gonna be only 10 minutes or 20 minutes, whatever we set aside. I'm not making a judgment about uh, how you spend your time, but just, just know what you're doing with it, right? So if both purpose and suitability are there, then we can go ahead and, and you know, do what we're doing. Um, so the third and fourth qualities, the domain and the non-delusion, those are relevant during the action. So those are things that we would pay attention to while we're doing something. And that's um, seen here in the Satipatthana Sutta. Flipping to the next slide. Um, so this says full awareness, which is uh, the translation in this case of Sampajanya. So it says, um, you know, this one says, one acts in full awareness when going forward and returning, looking ahead and looking away, flexing and extending the limbs, 
wearing the robes and carrying the bowl. Okay, that's from monastics, but we can think of our equivalents. Eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting, defecating and urinating, walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. So that's a lot, of course, to pay attention to, but that's the idea is that we sort of go through our day with an understanding of what we're doing. And it doesn't say you should only do this, you need to do that, you shouldn't do this. Uh, it just says make sure you know what you're doing in this case. So this puts us, this is part of, by the way, the first foundation of mindfulness. It's one of the mindfulness of the body exercises that we can undertake. So what I want to point out about this way of engaging our mind, way of engaging our mindfulness, is that it's a little bit different way of knowing than we might normally. It's not like we didn't know that we were doing all these things as we went through the first number of years of our life before we discovered Dharma practice. I think we knew that we were eating, not necessarily always that aware, but you know, we know, we know these, these are familiar activities. But when we bring mindfulness to them and have this clear comprehension, we're engaging knowing in a little bit different way. Um, it, this is something that we can put language to. You know, we can say, I'm extending my limb and I'm retracting my limb. And so it's, you know, it's very clearly in the verbal, you know, sort of regular analytical domain. Um, but it's not really something that we could write a formula about or um, be certain that it's the same for others. You know, if I'm seeing something or doing something, it's actually a unique experience to me. I don't know that it's quite the same for you. It, it, is, it does become a more unique kind of knowledge, something that's not in the realm where we can um, literally share the direct experience of it. So I'm pointing towards this being a little bit... Um, um, different kind of knowledge, maybe, than what we would normally think of as factual knowledge or thought-based knowledge. So it's personal knowledge in a way, very personal, but it's also not so concerned with our personal story. You know, if I'm just extending my limb and retracting it or tasting food at this moment, there isn't, it doesn't come with a whole long decades long story about who I am and what's happened to me and what this means for me and all of this, full awareness is this Sampajanya is meant to be um, kind of uh, more in the moment. So if that makes it an aspect of wisdom. It's not about um, the complicated proliferations that we usually bring to something. It's, it's more simple in the moment. It's a kind of knowing, but it's, um, it's uh, an aspect that's related to wisdom. So that means that by doing clear comprehension, you're not even doing anything complicated. You're, you can do it, it's a daily life practice. Of course, you can do it on the cushion also, but it's a daily life practice to know what you're doing while you're doing it. Um, but because it's, it is an aspect of wisdom, it slowly weans your mind off of needing to feel like it knows everything in a logical way and has a story about what's going on all the time. It's not the same as that commentator that goes along and says, now we're doing such and such because this is probably what this person thinks about us means that we ought to do it this way. You know, I know, you know, that voice that goes on and on and it's like the sportscaster uh, annotating our life. Clear comprehension, the word clear <laughs> indicates that it's not 
that the same as that. So it's a more simple, just simple action-based knowing. And it's not that you know we would do that 100% of our life from now until the end, now that we've started Dharma practice, there are, there are other ways to engage with daily life, but it's a very good practice to maybe for a period each day, really be clear about each action, something like that. On retreat, you're encouraged to do that all the time because you don't have too many responsibilities. But you know, I understand that in regular life, like while you're driving, please pay attention to what you need to while you're driving also. But you might know vaguely that you're driving while you're driving as opposed to using driving as a time to think through all those conversations from yesterday and blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly you're pulling into the parking lot and you don't remember anything about the drive. We've all done that one too. So yeah, so this is a, a really excellent daily life practice that cultivates wisdom and brings forth a, a Dharma quality. Okay, are there any um, questions or comments on that? Because we're going to do one more quick meditation. Yeah, Marilyn. Yeah, I, I think um, you just touched on something. I was thinking like, oh, this is all what it's like on, you know, long retreat. And, um, and then you're kind of like saying, yeah. And yeah, how do we do that in daily life? Like, I don't know, just like what you said, like just to be mindful that you're driving instead of thinking about all those other things and then suddenly you're at the place you are. But I, I, anyway, there's the rub for me. You know, like how do you bring in that kind of consciousness into everyday life, which is, I mean, they're almost like opposing forces to me sometimes. This is a great place to start to see the difference between analytical discursive thought that goes on during the day and clear comprehension, which is still pretty mundane thought, um, but you know about what we're doing. So you can feel the difference between them in that just like when we did meditation and we did direct experience compared to being lost in thought, there's an obvious difference between those in daily life, there's an obvious difference between going around with our head in the, the random thoughts that are coming through and going around with a sense of knowing what we're doing as we're doing it. Uh, it it'll have a different flavor. It's more subtle because it's less of a difference. You're not going, you could go to the body. Actually, it is a lot of them are about our body movements. But it's kind of, I'm now kind of extending into a harder area. Like you've said, mm -hmm. why is, so, you know, it is harder in daily life. So to answer your question, maybe a little bit more practically, uh, sticky notes are great. You know, you can, you know, put uh, relax or pay attention or something around the house. Of course, if they're there for long enough, you blank them out and don't see them anymore. But it's the creation of a habit, you know, just over time. Um, for me personally, I still use body awareness. I think that really helps. When I started my practice, I was someone who was really... Um, physically tense. You know, it was just like it was my habit to just kind of be <laughs> tensed up. And I didn't even know it for a long time. But once I started practicing, of course, it became obvious on the cushion because it's hard to sit when you're tense like that. But then I started noticing, you know, actually, even in just in daily life, I tend to tense up um, very easily, habitually. And so I spent probably a couple years of my practice, the main thing I was doing was relaxing. <laughs> And it's, it's, um, I still 
remind myself from time to time to do that, but uh, I can say that over time it becomes habitual to relax instead of tense up. Uh, but I had to remember it, and it was, it was quite profound, actually, the effect of that. And just being physically relaxed helps the mind to be more mindful, actually. And that's part of what happens on retreat, is that it's so comfortable on retreat. Not that retreat is always comfortable in that sense, but at least you don't, you don't have to do very much. You can get, your food is provided. You have a nice place to sleep. It's usually a beautiful surrounding, so forth. So there's, there's a way in which the system just kind of relaxes on retreat, and that also helps us be more mindful. But we don't have that in our daily life, so we have to remember. Um, and I, yeah, I, I encourage relaxing the body as a way to be more mindful. Okay, good. Well, let's do another, um, another short meditation. Settle us in to some of these qualities. So again, finding a posture that's upright and, and also relaxed. Closing the eyes if that's okay for you. Softening and feeling the seat where you're sitting. Letting go and letting the seat that we're in support us. And just softening through the body. Tuning in to the sensations of breathing, the gentle flow of the breath coming in and going out as direct physical sensations. Feeling the breath in the body as a physical phenomenon, a flow of experiences. Experiences like heat and coolness, pressure and relaxation, feelings of motion, simple elemental physical sensations.
And we can clearly comprehend that this is the domain of the body. These are physical sensations in the part of experience that's called body form. Knowing the breath as breath in the body. Maybe noticing if it's long or short. Noticing where it feels clearest in the body. And then knowing also that we know, knowing that at this moment there is mindfulness. Clearly comprehending that mindfulness is an aspect of the domain of mind. So there's the direct physical sensations of the body, breathing. And there's the, the knowing of that, just different. In addition, there's some attitude with the mindfulness. Maybe the mindfulness is just clear and open and simple. We can also check if it includes 
warm acceptance, respect, ease. This too is an aspect of the domain of mind. And this clear awareness, clearly comprehending mind, is something that we can trust. So trusting this knowing, this awareness. And if also in the mind you find aspects that feel unified or collected or easeful or happy, these two are qualities that can be trusted. Perhaps even opening a little bit farther, we could decide to trust that it's okay for anything to arise. Anything that could come, it will be met in awareness.
with clear comprehension. So we can trust the flow of experience as it comes. So, I guess I'll um, pause again for any questions on, on clear comprehension or on seeing the body, the mind, trusting awareness. Okay, well, so um, once we see that this um, kind of analytical function of mind, the ability to analyze and separate things out into different components, that it's actually useful, um, serviceable on the path. And we can start to open to these other <clears throat> more wisdom-related functions that use it, such as clear comprehension, Next time, we're also going to look at one. Uh, we're going to look at investigation as a, um, another state that is like this. And so um, 
but we, then we see that there are these aspects that um, nourish the cultivation of wisdom. It's not like you just sort of start with a thinking mind and then develop the wisdom and that's it. There's all these other pieces that come in. There's even more than we could really talk about, but today we talked about, for example, mindfulness and the attitude with which we have mindfulness, which I call different dimensions of metta, of openness, inclusion, goodwill. Um, and also we talked about uh, trust or sada or faith, conviction, confidence, whatever word, English cluster of English words you associate with that. Um, so these are ways in which we, mm, for lack of a better word, soften or sweeten even um, the little bit uh, drier, more arid uh, aspect of thinking. Um, once we start to open to some of these hard qualities to use, if I'm allowed to use that word uh, on the path, um, uh, it becomes clear that uh, thinking just has a different flavor to it. And, you know, I'm not, uh, all, the, all the way along, I've been saying there's nothing wrong with this part of the mind, but it's, um, it does need this nourishment, this kind of sweetening or softening or, um, yeah nourishment from other aspects of the mind and heart, which are always available. We just may not have habitually been relying on them. So once we have something that's a little bit more kind of complete and together, it's like growing a garden. You know, you need different things. You need the soil and the water and the seed and the sunlight and things like that. Um, so we get all these things together in a, in a group, and then we can start growing things. And one of the first things that we might notice is this sampajanya, which is done in daily life, done on the cushion, you know, this ability to see clearly, instead of having a wash of experience that's, you know, not organized well, we start to organize it into components like body and mind, um, like um, getting finer differentiations, feeling tone, chitta, and uh, dhammas, as besides um, the forms of the four uh, domains of mindfulness. So um, this is starting maybe to give some structure to why the teachings are the way they are. They're designed to help us see experience in a certain way, to break down this wash into in useful ways, ways that will help us advance the path. And the mind um, has all the components it needs to do that. It has all the abilities it needs to do that. We just have to harness them and recognize what they are. So we're starting to do that uh, through the way we've been talking about things in this, in this class. So I have um, a few recommendations for cultivating your practice this month, if, you, if it's of interest um, listed here. So we can cultivate uh, clarity of purpose, which we exactly what we were talking about earlier, just do what we're doing and know that that's what we're doing. So. When you're taking a shower, just take a shower. And when you're eating, just eat. Um, find ways throughout the day to have this simple awareness of what you're doing and see. And, and like, like in meditation, your mind will wander off from what your intended purpose was. You know, we, we intend to be with the breath, but that doesn't happen uh, the whole time. And so you, and then you can notice what took you away and, you know, what was more important and how that happened and then don't beat yourself up about it and just 
come back to what you were doing, come back to knowing what you were doing. And then in the case of cushion practice, I would suggest noticing the, uh, the stance or the attitude um, with which we're being mindful, just to make sure it doesn't have any of those little flavors of slight offness that we can get. Um, so, you know, aiming for the mindfulness to be inclusive and accepting and warm. Um, and I'll send you the recordings of the sittings that we did today. I recorded them separately um, in case you want to use those, but you don't have to. You certainly don't have to. Um, and then just looking forward, there's again, um, there are three more sessions, one per month. So the next one's gonna be on a Sunday. It's a little bit different from the others, um, just cause that's what worked out that weekend. So Sunday, July 12th. And we'll look particularly at Dharma investigation. We might, um, we might say a little more about clear comprehension. We didn't quite finish that one and other, other wisdom qualities, and then we'll um, move on from there to other things. Um, I think everyone here is already registered. And then there's also the, the Tama link. So, um, so I'll come back to here, and uh, I see we have about five more minutes, so that means we, can, we have time for any last questions or comments. Anything else on your mind? You know, <clears throat> um, the the whole day I've been that what's been running through my mind is a quote from Krishnamurti that um, seems to be what you've been saying all day, mm. and and it's um, he says, "I'll tell you my secret." I don't mind what is. Very nice. Quite profound if we could really do that. Yeah. Thank you. All right, so everybody looks sort of calm and happy. So I think that's a good place to end actually. And we'll, um, we'll just say that, um, you know, may our, our practice, it's such an important time for practice, may our practice be of benefit as we bring. And the other thing is that the world needs clear comprehension. <laughs> it needs, um, in the simple aspect, just knowing what we're doing um, so much so much happens better when we know what we're doing and also being willing not minding what is being willing to really see what's going on in our world right now there's a lot going on and if I can use this word again all of our heart is is needed to meet uh, the challenges that were um, that are coming to people I think overall that it's better for things to be conscious than unconscious so um, and those of us who have some ability to hold things in consciousness that are hard to hold, that's what mindfulness gives us. Our strength is needed in a world that is you know, 
realizing more about racism than it realized before and is also grappling with uh, a pandemic that um, nobody has any immunity to. This is a hard truth. So um, please be also be gentle in your practice with yourself and with those around you and, and really with the whole world. And, and understand, I hope, that um, everything we're doing on our path, no matter how simple or small it seems, contributes to the, the larger picture of what's needed in this world of, of wisdom and compassion. So thank you, everyone, and have a wonderful month. You can feel Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.